Wait, Zimmerman letter? That was in World War One. Oops, wrong war. Bye, bad. It's <laughs> a good way to start the podcast. Welcome to Learn from a Layman. I am Carl Christensen. I am back with Matt and Cameron, uh, and we are continuing our World War Two. Uh, well, I thought it was going to be a two-part podcast, but I was informed shortly before this podcast that it will be a three-part podcast or more. So um, it should just the, be three parts. Three parts? Okay. Probably three parts. <laughs> okay. Um, and yes, we are missing Tim today. He's off gallivanting around doing who knows what. And Johnny's either in the ICU or sleeping. So... Um, Let's see. Any uh, any news before we dig into World War Two here? Uh, podcast news, of course. I assume if you're looking for other world news, you go to different sources. So um, podcast news is uh, this is not a continuation of our decades history series. This is a continuation of the World War Two. So uh, part one episode. Um, and with that, I think we'll just. Um, Turn the time over to Matt. So, Matt, I think we left off in um, Midway and with the pun involved. Yeah, no. Anyway. <laughs> Mid, midway through the, okay. Well, you got to try. Like I, we talked about before the podcast, World War II, very involved, tragic, um, not something that can be taken lightly. Therefore, any jokes need to come out before the podcast. All right. So, with all of that out of the way. Um, yeah, we, we'd kind of led up to Midway, the Battle of Midway, um, which was in June 1942. At this point in the rest of the world, um, North Africa, Rommel is doing pretty well. The, the British had a counteroffensive that didn't go so great, and Rommel has launched a counter-counteroffensive that has uh, pushed, kind of reversed all of those gains. Uh, so he's doing well in North Africa. The, the Japanese have taken a number of islands throughout the Pacific. Uh, Singapore has fallen in early 1942 in one of the largest disasters in British military history. Uh, Java, Burma, New Guinea, the Philippines, they, they've all fallen to the Japanese as well. Um, and the Germans have also advanced on Russia and kind of stalled out just outside Moscow, where, where they got repulsed initially. Um, so... They're doing pretty well, and Rommel is is doing great in North Africa, and the Japanese are, are sliding across the Pacific, just taking island after island. And we talked last time about how the Doolittle raid was kind of the first piece of American good news that we got in the war, and then we just had the Battle of the Coral Sea in early 1942, which was essentially the first time that the Japanese didn't win something. Uh, it's not like that that battle was essentially a stalemate. Um, but coming up in the summer, in June, in the Pacific, you have the Battle of Midway. And this is, Midway is, is well, it's Midway through the Pacific. It's, it's between Asia and the U.S., so it's pretty strategically important. And the Japanese moved to attack it with force, including a bunch of battleships, a even larger number of cruisers and destroyers and four fleet carriers, all four of which had been participants in the Pearl Harbor raid. 
the U.S. is able to scramble together no battleships, a handful of cruisers and destroyers, and three fleet carriers, including the USS Yorktown, which had just come out of the Battle of the Coral Sea with a number of holes in it and had been rushed through emergency repairs in Hawaii to get it back out uh, for the upcoming Midway invasion. The United Who, States had... Sorry. sorry. Uh, I was going to ask ahead. a question about Midway. Did you mention already, did I miss, who's in control of Midway before the Battle of Midway? The U.S. has a small contingent there. And, okay. and that uh, had been in, the case before right, World War II and, as well? Uh, I don't know for how long uh, okay. it had been a U.S. possession, but yeah. And and last time we talked about how American codebreakers had figured out that the Japanese were coming from Midway, thus the rushed repairs to the Yorktown and, and the dispatching of that task force out to defend the island. Uh, the Battle of Midway kicks off in early June. I believe it's June 4th. It starts with a raid from Midway Island. Land-based bombers actually find the Japanese fleet and attempt to bomb it from high altitude. That does not work. Uh, then there's a land-based torpedo bomber attack, which also does not work, and the attackers lose two of the four planes sent out. And and finally, um, there are two American carrier-based aircraft attacks. And and the Battle of Midway could take up a podcast on its own. Uh, but in short, much of the time, the, the different forces have uh, spent looking for each other. And the Japanese in particular suffer some, some really poorly timed uh, findings if you will. Uh, they do launch some air attacks on Midway Island, um, and and they do some damage there. And But they're really looking for the American carriers that are nearby uh, because they want to knock those out. The problem that the Japanese have is if you want to bomb things on land, you use high-explosive bombs. If you want to bomb a ship, you use an armor-piercing bomb. And through a series of just poorly timed reports, the Japanese end up thinking they've found the carriers, thinking they've lost the carriers, thinking they've refound the carriers a number of times. And so they keep switching the bombs on their aircraft uh, on the decks of the carriers. And the first American air attack, uh, I'm sorry, carrier-based air attack comes in, and it's a whole bunch of torpedo bombers flying horribly obsolete aircraft uh, maximum speed of you know less than 200 miles an hour, and they've got to endure a something like 20-minute run on the carriers at low altitude under intense fire the entire time. Uh, one of the torpedo squadrons from the USS Yorktown is completely annihilated on its attack run. Every plane is shot down, and only one person survives. Um, and so the the torpedo attack goes nowhere, but it does draw down the Japanese uh, combat air patrol, the fighters that are supposed to be protecting the carriers that are looking for other American planes have all descended from high altitude to low altitude to target these torpedo bombers that are flying at, you know, 300 feet or less. Um, While they are down there, the American dive bomber squadrons arrive uh, completely unopposed in the air, and they wreak havoc on the Japanese carriers. And because of the switching back and forth of, of bombs, 
When the dive bombers show up, the Japanese carrier decks are covered in high explosives and fuel lines and combat planes with loaded ammo. And it, it goes very badly, very quickly for the Japanese carriers. Three of them are sunk outright um, in, a, in very short order. The what remaining was the size of sorry. What, sorry, was the size of the, uh, what was the size of the Japanese fleet, but both at Midway? So you said it's, they sunk three out of how many and how many total did they have across the Pacific? Do you know? um, I'm not sure how many they had over the, over the course of the, the war. They had a number, um, but for the Midway task force, they had four. Um, oh, wow. So opposing, 75% sunk. Yeah, that, that was crippling. Uh, yeah. The one remaining fleet carrier, I think it was the Hiryu, uh, launches a retaliation strike because we know that American planes and carriers are definitely in the area now. Uh, they find the USS Yorktown and they um, pretty badly cripple it. The Yorktown is uh, finished off a day or so later by a Japanese submarine. Um, uh, but but that action is the conclusion of the Japanese offensive against Midway Island. Uh, the Hiryu is sunk the next day by another American strike. So the Japanese lose four fleet carriers at Midway. The United States loses one, um, and, and there are some other smaller ship losses as well. But that is the first time that the Japanese actually suffer a naval defeat in the Pacific. And from there, the tide begins slowly to turn in the Allies' favor. Question real quick. You mentioned yeah. that they were that, – that they spent a lot of time looking for the, the fleet or, or airplanes – um, were any of these carriers fitted with, I know radar was new technology back then. Were they outfitted with radar? Was radar not successful in picking up planes? And what, what do we, like, how does that technology, uh, did it play at all in World War II? Yeah, it absolutely did. Um, many ships had radar on them. Uh, American modern ships at the time, modern, uh, had radar to direct their guns and it was very, actually very effective. Um, but the radar is mounted on a ship's mast, which is, you know, some dozen meters above the surface of the ocean. And so you can see for tens of miles, um, you know, you're, you're not going to see past the horizon. And the horizon, when you're on the ship's mast, is not at the distances that these fleets are sailing at. Um, you know, the, the fleets will be hundreds of miles apart well within range right. of aircraft strikes, but not close enough to pick up on surface-based radars. And airborne radar is not much of a thing at this point. Um, it's it's very, very limited in how much it can be used. And so it really does come down to reconnaissance planes flying around looking for stuff. Um, and, and you're not looking, you know, I mentioned World War II is big. Well, the Pacific Ocean is actually even bigger. And finding a small ship in that much water can be very, very difficult. We know that's true still today because of the the missing flight, the Malaysian flight that was never actually found, right? Well, well I mean, we yes, and also the fact that the Pacific Ocean is still it's the still same large. size. Yeah, it's still big. <laughs> well, right. That but hasn't I guess... changed. <laughs> You'd imagine technology has kind of shrunk the, uh, you know, or, or at least increased our ability to search vast surfaces. And, and that's even, uh, you know, 10 years ago, whenever that Malaysian flight went yeah. missing, it well, and still is the case that we weren't able to track it. 
Right. Um, the planet is large, even with space-based sensors that we have today, they only see the small patch of Earth that they're looking at at the time. Um, and you have to tell them where to look to find something. Um, and, and so, yeah, back in 1942, you were very limited in what you could find. And unless you had a tip-off like the Americans had with the broken code, uh, that allowed them to know that Midway was coming, it's hard to know where and when the enemy is going to be. Um, and, you know, even the uh, the fact of a reconnaissance plane, that was kind of a double-edged sword, because if you sent out a reconnaissance plane, you could find the enemy maybe, but if the enemy saw your plane, then they had a tip-off that you were in the area too. And you could even have your plane get shadowed back to the fleet so the enemy now knows where you are. Yeah, um, were the reconnaissance planes of a different variety? Were they the fastest planes or anything like that? Uh, no, generally not. They were just uh, planes that could fly around with a guy with eyes <laughs> looking for things. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just airborne eyes. Um, right. Okay. You don't have the same airborne sensors that we have today um and, and this will be a theme throughout many of these pacific battles as much of it is the two sides trying to find each other while not being found at the same time and uh, you know this gets particularly complicated when you have some of the night battles that we'll get to in a bit um, but that's that's the battle of midway it's a decisive american victory uh, midway is defended and although we did lose the USS Yorktown and we still don't have a lot of surface power, we've actually stopped the Japanese from achieving their objective. So that is uh, that that's early June 1944. I'm sorry, 1942. Uh, meanwhile, in Europe, uh, all, all kinds of things have been happening throughout early 1942. Um a couple major events. Um, I, I mentioned that the Germans had been going after Moscow. Well, there was a red counteroffensive, a red army counteroffensive in January that pushed the Germans back a little bit, um, but didn't really succeed at, at breaking things. The, the Germans are still heavily advancing and, and, and causing misery in Russia. Leningrad is under siege and, and has been actually since late 1941. And that siege continues for uh, two and a half years, um, where it, it's only finally broken up in the very beginning of, of 1944. More than a million people starve to death in Leningrad. Where uh, is Leningrad in Russia? Sorry, I don't have a. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Leningrad is St. Petersburg. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was Leningrad at the time. It is St. Petersburg before that time and also after that time. Um, I guess it was only Leningrad up until 1991. So we've got like that Istanbul, Constantinople thing going on? Yeah, something like that where, uh, you know, you have St. Petersburg and then suddenly you have a, a, a major revolution and decide to be communist and well, you got to name something after your founding communists. So uh, Leningrad, Thus, named, named okay. after Philip Grad, the founder of communism. <laughs> that is the only joke I'm going to tell in this podcast. <laughs> okay, perfect. 
All right. So uh, that's going on over there. Um, a couple other significant developments from early 1942. Uh, the Germans hold the Wannsee, Wannsee Conference, uh, but this is where uh, it's a pretty grim conference, and this is where the the whole final solution is kind of formally decided on. The Jews have been being persecuted in Germany for some time, even much predating the outbreak of World War II. They've been barred from public office, from practicing medicine, from uh, all, all these different things. And then they start getting arrested, persecuted, relocated, uh, sealed in, in wardened off sections of different cities uh, called ghettos. Um, and and. At the Wan C conference, the Germans formally decide that the ultimate, well, the final solution to the Jewish problem is relocation followed by extermination. And this becomes official Nazi doctrine uh, in January of 1942. Um, right around that time, Fresh off the fact that we've just been attacked in Pearl Harbor and now Germany has declared war on the United States, you have the first Americans arriving in Europe to really formally start getting involved and fighting. Uh, and they arrive in January of 42 as well. Real Sorry, quick, and maybe you'll touch on this later. So you said the final solution is becomes Nazi doctrine in 1942. Uh, so does this mean the con concentration camps were officially formed around then, or was it before? When did, when did well, that happen? Well, the, 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 the concentration camps, I mean, they, they kind of – I'm not an expert on the Holocaust. Um, my understanding is that they kind of evolved. Uh, they were transient camps and then labor camps and then concentration camp. I don't actually know what concentration camp is supposed to mean. Um, but, you know, in effect, they, they, they went from being uh, transient camps to labor camps to prison camps to death camps. Um, and, and that evolved over the course of years, starting in, uh, you know, the late 1930s and going up until 1945, when those camps were liberated by advancing allied armies. Uh, and, and much of the, the rest of the world didn't really have an idea of what was going on in those camps. Um, sometimes not even, not, not up until allied troops rolled in and found what was happening. Um, but, but yeah, the, the Wannsee conference in January of 1942 was where it was kind of, you know, this is where Germany formally decided, yeah, extermination, that's what we're doing. Um, and, and it was the latest in a series of increasingly oppressive and barbaric policies um, that had been going on since, you know, since Hitler came to power in 1933, uh, depriving Jews of, of civil rights, property rights, life, all, all of these things. Uh, and, and then it, it, it just continued to escalate until this point. Um, with that... There's some other significant things starting up in early 1944. I'm sorry, 1942. I apologize. Uh, the Battle of Britain concluded in uh, earlier, as we talked about last podcast. Uh, check that out if you haven't listened to it already. 
but with the failure of Germany to break Britain and to break the Royal Air Force, the Royal Air Force starts to hit back. And in early 1942, uh, they start, well, in, in prior to this, they, they start carrying out bombing raids into German-held territories, first at daylight, uh, when and, and things do not go well for them when they attack in daylight, and then they suffer pretty bad losses. And so they move to night bombing. And they do this essentially until the end of the war. Um, and, and in fact, when the Americans join in the war in Europe, the agreement is that the Americans will carry out daylight bombing raids and the British <clears throat> will carry out nighttime bombing raids. And so in um, May of 1942, you have the first of what are called the Thousand Bomber Raids, and it's literally a thousand bombers. And, and the British evolved their night bombing tactics throughout the war. They adopt something called a bomber stream, where it's not a massed formation, but it's well, a stream of small formations of bombers going off to whatever target. And as you can imagine, night bombing is a little bit difficult because you can't really see. And so the British don't do much in the way of precision bombing. Um, they, they go for area targets. The other thing that they do is they send out um, uh, what you call a Pathfinder aircraft uh, that actually does find the precise target, drops a radio beacon on top of it, and then the, the British bombers using onboard equipment home in on that beacon and drop their bombs in that area. And so this continues on throughout the war. The Thousand Bomber Raid in May is on Cologne, and it's, well, it's a lot of bombs coming down on Cologne. And that's the first of those really, really large-scale raids that will continue uh, through the rest of the war, trying to break German industry. Meanwhile, something that I kind of missed during the last podcast down in the Mediterranean, there's a small island called Malta. It's a great place to visit. You should definitely go there. Uh, one of the I've reasons, been there. Yeah. I've it's, been there. And, and where is Malta? It's in the middle of the Mediterranean. It is in the middle of the Mediterranean. It is a highly strategically valuable point because a lot of traffic is coming through the Mediterranean uh, to and from North Africa, from you know, occupied Europe, keeping Rommel supplied, and also to and from Asia and India, keeping Britain supplied as it goes up the Suez Canal through the Mediterranean and over to Britain. Uh, now, Italy is there with their navy that the British have made some significant efforts to check. Um, but Malta is just this really key point where if you can control that, you have significant control over the Mediterranean. The British realize this, they have Malta. The Germans realize this, they want Malta. And so throughout much of 1941 and 42, the Germans uh, lay siege to Malta. Um, It's a naval siege, it's an aerial siege. Uh, There is bombing nonstop by the Luftwaffe. Uh, and, And one of the urban legends of World War II is that at one point the British Air Force on Malta is reduced to three obsolete biplanes, these uh, gladiator biplanes, um, and they they nicknamed them Faith, Hope, and Charity because they were the last three functional aircraft, and those three aircraft held off the Luftwaffe for 
a very long time. Okay, it's not quite like that, but it's also not too far from the truth either. Um, and and yeah, Malta just gets hammered um, repeatedly. In May, a, a U.S. aircraft carrier gets uh, a number of Spitfires over to um, actually it's two carriers. It's a British and a U.S. carrier. A number of Spitfire fighters get over to Malta, um, and and finally, uh, you start to have a little bit of hope that Malta can hold out. Uh, meanwhile, the the German commander the, that's running the siege, the next day he sends a message to Hitler saying, "Yep, yeah, Malta is definitely ours," uh, unaware that we actually got reinforcements in, and those those Spitfires that are delivered really start to turn the air war around. And before long, the 400 plus German um, or 400 aircraft of the German force that's going off after Malta is reduced by about three fourths uh, yeah. based on the defending fighters. Hey, well, I didn't ever, I've never considered this before, but now that we're talking about the war in, in the Mediterranean, you said yeah. that the U.S. had a carrier and obviously multiple carriers that we'll talk eventually about. Uh, uh, how did we uh, get through the Strait of Gibraltar? Was that not a problem? Because, I, I mean, that's Spanish um, and they were friendly to the Germans and it's a small little area entry into the Mediterranean there. Were they not guarding that? Well, I'm not sure exactly, but keep in mind that although the Spanish might have been friendly to the Germans, they also weren't directly involved much. Um, not only that, but they're coming in with a military convoy, and I mean, it's a carrier. It's got a, so it can protect itself, is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, you've got some some significant escorts going on with that. That is not the case for all of the convoys. Uh, in fact, at one point, a little bit later in 1942. Um, th this convoy delivered military aircraft. That's great. Uh, but Malta also happens to need things like, you know, food and bullets. Um, and they're running out of those. And so there are these other supply convoys that are also sent in, and they don't fare as well. Two of these convoys are launched at the same time in, I believe, June 1942. And they're, they're codenamed... Uh, Harpoon and Vigorous, and the one does sail from Gibraltar, uh, and the other sails from Alexandria in Egypt, uh, and they are so savaged by the Luftwaffe and Italian surface vessels that two of the six ships from Harpoon actually make it to Malta, and the entire Vigorous convoy from uh, Alexandria is is cancelled. It's just pulled back. The planning for this thing was that the the ally the the British expected the convoys to get hit. They sent two at the same time because they hoped that one of them would distract from the other, and they didn't know which, and they didn't care which. Uh, they just sent two convoys, believing that one would be sacrificed to allow the other to get through. And that's how desperate the situation on Malta was, and it kind of didn't work. Um, but Malta does manage to hold out, and by November of 1942, the situation has, has improved drastically. Um, the, the, the German air attacks have been greatly reduced, and, and a few more 
you know, reinforcements and relief has been able to arrive. And, and so that crisis is, is finally averted by November of 1942. Just um, as a context for Malta, having yeah. been there, you can look at pictures as well, but just it is a heavily fortified, uh, at least Valletta, which is uh, the, the capital. It's where I spent my time when I was there, heavily fortified because over the centuries, it's been a strategic um you know, uh, play, uh, island for many wars. Uh, yeah, I've got uh, Napoleon's residence on Malta. Anyway, there's uh, it's it's been attacked and attacked and attacked. So yeah, it's uh, a heavily fortified stone walls uh, all over the place. So, right. Yeah, it's. I mean, the Mediterranean has been a hotbed of for for civilization and for civilization's conflicts for some time. So. Uh, speaking of oceans and conflict, um, also early 1942, uh, the commander of the German U-boats, uh, Karl Donitz, aware that the U.S. are trying to implement some uh, countermeasures against U-boats, um, basically shifts their focus from the East Coast, where they have been running absolutely wild. Uh, to the Gulf of Mexico, where they continue to run absolutely wild. Uh, in fact, there are, are, are two things in the Battle of the Atlantic that the German Navy referred to as the, the first happy time during 1941, where they just sat in the middle of the Atlantic and torpedoed everything. And then the second happy time in early 1942, where they parked off the East Coast and against the beautiful backlights of major population centers like New York City, they could see the silhouettes of merchant ships, which makes it really easy to torpedo them at night. And just thousands upon thousands of tons of shipping is sunk by the U-boats uh, during during these phases. Uh, when we finally start to implement these anti-U-boat countermeasures, instead of waiting to see whether or not they will work, uh, Admiral Donitz basically says, you know what, just go down to the Gulf of Mexico and do things down there. And they do. And they continue to run wild. And the the U-boats enjoy much success in the Atlantic for quite some time until finally real anti-submarine countermeasures like airborne radar start to deprive them of their ability to hide. And the U-boat losses will mount and mount uh, through 1943 until they're finally largely recalled from Atlantic operations. Um, but at the time, this is having a massive impact on the ability to keep Britain supplied and to, I mean, I mean, it's a large chunk of industrial output that is just going straight to the bottom of the ocean. Um, so so things are, are not looking great in terms of the the Atlantic front in early 1942. Uh, in Russia, things are looking even less great because although the Germans have stalled out and, and were repulsed around Moscow, uh, they're still, they've still got Leningrad wrapped up and, and things are looking really bad. And then in May, they attack Kharkov and you have what is the second battle of Kharkov the Soviets lose 280,000 men 
in a in a massive German victory. And so even though the German offensive towards Moscow has been blunted, they are still running wild against uh, against Russia. And one Kirchhoff of the is uh, south oh. of Moscow in modern day Ukraine. Yes. Just adding some context. Yeah. Um, one of the themes that you see in the German to Russian conflict uh, on the Eastern Front is that the Germans will outfight the Russians by a significant margin. Um, and it ends up not mattering because the Russians just have that many more things, uh, conscripts, tanks, planes. Um, the, the highest scoring pilots of all time are German fighter pilots, and they have kill counts in the hundreds. By contrast, the top American air ace of all time, a pilot named Richard Bong, had 40 confirmed kills, uh, largely fighting the Japanese. The top scoring um, ace in World War I was the Red Baron, who had 80. The top scoring ace of all time is a man named Eric Hartmann, a German who fought in uh, on the Eastern Front, who had 352 against the Russians. Uh, there were two. That's crazy. That is crazy. There were two Germans that scored over 300. There were many that scored over 200. There were dozens upon dozens that scored over 100. That has to be a combination, uh, though, of, of skill and also technology then, right? Was a Luftwaffe just head, uh, head and shoulders above the planes that they were facing? There's some of that. Um, the Russian uh, planes were not built to particularly high standards. Uh, in fact, you, you have accounts of was the the LAGG3 lag 3 it was it was a russian fighter made by Levochkin. um the wings were glued together literally laminated plywood glued together oh my That's... the glue would fail in flight sometimes <laughs> not even in combat oh my um yeah there was a oh, I, I i can't remember the exact russian phrase but um LAGG3 was the formal designation Russian pilots um, kind of gave it the derisive nickname. In the Russian, the characters uh, you know, formed an acronym. They made up their own words for what that acronym would represent, and it was something like uh, Guaranteed Varnished Coffin. Oh, my. Uh, yeah. So it was they, a bad uh, time. Yeah, uh, sounds Russians didn't prioritize uh, putting together good uh, pieces of uh, aircraft. Well, not not at first, and and they eventually developed some some pretty decent uh, planes later in the war. Um, but you know, the, the, yeah, the the aircraft capability is one thing. The the pilot training is another. Keep in mind that before World War II, Stalin had purged most of his really decent commanders because when you're a dictator, you don't want smart people around you. Um, so so that was a factor. And yeah, these guys were conscripts given very little training and thrown into the teeth of the Luftwaffe, who had already been blooded in uh, in, in various battles in Europe. Um, and, and that wasn't just on the air side. On the ground side, it was the same, if not worse, um, where 
you know, German and Russian armor would trade uh, in, in some of these battles at, at ridiculous kill ratios in favor of the Germans. But there was always another Russian tank rolling up behind the last one that you knocked out. So, uh, but anyway, back in early 1942, the Germans are still enjoying significant success here uh, in, in Russia. Uh, they're also enjoying significant success in uh, in Libya, I'm sorry, in, well, North Africa in general, where Rommel comes back down there. Um, he, the, the allies, the British in particular, have, have kind of pushed him back from some of their gains. And then he launch, launches a counteroffensive. Um, and, and he gets to the point where he's completely surrounded uh, the, the city of Tobruk. And, and the Germans hold him there briefly until he, he pivots, does some really interesting maneuvers involving a British minefield, which he uses to protect his own flank. Um, and, and he just goes from there, uh, just, just harassing the free French forces that are down there, uh, pushing back the British, just reducing everything. And, uh, it's he he's he's running wild and he's not being contained particularly well in North Africa. Um, and the forces opposing him there are exclusively British and American, or only British at this point. And, and okay, I'm sorry, so British and French. Um, okay. And and it's the the remaining free French because keep in mind France has fallen by this point. Right. Um, so the the Brits are essentially on their own. Uh, in, in North Africa, uh, the Brits and the French there, they don't have, the, the Russians aren't there supporting them. Uh, the U.S. isn't there yet. Um, and and Rommel a, is very good. This might be a tangent, but we don't need to go off. But if the the French government's fallen, but there are still vestiges of the French uh, military in some way, who's commanding them? Uh, they have their own command structures. Uh, Charles de Gaulle was was really key to leading free french forces um but you know how how all of that was administered how they were paid i i don't know okay so uh but let's get back into um 1942 so in in july i'm I'm sorry back into june uh we've come up to june now midway has just happened uh that's the turning point in the Pacific, and now we get to really the start of the turning point in Russia, where Hitler launches Case Blue, which is an attack on the Caucasus and and on Stalingrad, and it ends up being a two part a, a two pronged thing. It starts out as as this one single thrust, and then Hitler decides, you know what, we're going to split some of these armies up. Um, and one army group is going to go after the oil fields in the Caucasus because I'm desperately short of oil. Uh, Romania has already told Germany that we're going to have a very difficult time, if not, you know, meet, meeting your oil demands. And it may not even be possible. Um, and so Germany is already realizing that oil is going to be a critical thing and they're desperately short of it. And so if they can take the oil fields up in the Caucasus, well, that will help significantly. And it will deprive the Russians of that oil resource. And, you know, they need it too. So that's prong one. Prong two is going to go after Stalingrad. 
But the problem is the the Germans are already running short on oil. And when you split your army into two separate prongs, you complicate your logistics chain just that much more. And you exacerbate your oil problems. And so you start to run into that. Uh, But this massive campaign is, um, is, initially it goes very well. Uh, The Germans advance. They actually cut... One, the the last remaining rail section between the Caucasus and Central Russia in July, and Stalin and the the military council in Moscow absolutely panic when that happens, and that's when Stalin issues his famous order of not one step backward, um, which ends up being a a very brutal order for your average Soviet conscript. Um, but this offensive in Stalingrad goes on for some time and and we'll 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 hit this a lot as we progress through 1942 and 43 um also in July back to North Africa uh the battle of El Alamein the first one ends in a stalemate where Rommel is finally halted in his advances uh towards Alexandria in Egypt um also in July uh Outside of Case Blue, you have the Germans on the Crimean Peninsula taking Sebastopol, which has been under siege since October of 1941 and finally falls in in July of 42. Um, And then finally, uh, you have the first U.S. Army Air Force bomber raids on Europe, Uh, not against not on Germany, but on occupied Europe. Uh, those are launched in July. They're daylight raids, and U.S. daylight bombing raids will continue until the end of the war. Uh, so, hey, let's, really quick, yeah. Just to clarify, I've been looking into Stalingrad. The, the research I'm looking says that Stalingrad is actually Volgograd, not uh, Saint Petersburg. What? Saint Petersburg's north. No, Saint Pol- Petersburg is Leningrad. Stalingrad. Oh, now you've is, confused me. Too many grads. You'll have to take it up with the Russians. <laughs> okay, so, so now we're not not talking about. Uh, this is a different battle. The battle, battle of. Yes, uh, Leningrad is still Leningrad. under siege, and everyone is still starving, and it is okay. horrific. Um, and that's in the north, and Stalingrad in the south, also yeah. now renamed to Volgograd. Right. Okay. Right. Um, so. Uh, the Battle of Stalingrad goes on for some time, and I'm going to come back to that. Um, but uh, moving into August 1942, you have the beginning of another major campaign in the Pacific. This is the Solomons campaign, uh, specifically the Guadalcanal campaign, uh, where the U.S. lands on Guadalcanal um, in the Solomon Islands, uh, a Japanese-held island, and gets a beachhead there. And from there until the end of 1942, you'll have a lot of of naval engagements off Guadalcanal. So many in one particular patch of water. There are four separate engagements between American and Japanese forces where so many ships are sunk that the patch of water is named Iron Bottom Sound. uh, Just because of the number of ship hulks that are sent to the bottom there. but the Marines managed to take a beachhead on Guadalcanal and they quickly establish a landing strip uh, called Henderson Field. And that 
worries the Japanese because if the Americans get air power on the island, it's going to make life very hard for them. And so they Can launch. Give, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Just once again, some I try to slip layman because uh, Guadalcanal sounds familiar in context of World War II, but I don't believe the layman, including me, knew where that was. That's just northeast of Australia, just directly east of Papua New Guinea. Yes, in the Solomon Islands. And, and this is critical because the Japanese want to invade Australia. Australia desperately does not want to be invaded by the Japanese. And so the Solomons are a strategically critical staging point for the for the Japanese military forces that are trying to expand their sphere of influence in the South Pacific. And as they've been taking possession of these islands uh, and and menacing Australia, uh, you know, the plan is how do we get them back? And so Guadalcanal becomes the first one where uh, U.S. Marines invade the island. Uh, they establish Henderson Field, and the Japanese spend the next few months bombarding Henderson Field uh, from the shore, attacking it with massed infantry charges and, and other uh, tactics uh, by land. And the Marines hold, and Henderson Field holds. And throughout the course of these four naval engagements in Iron Bottom Sound, um, an, uh, a number of times the Japanese are the, the engagements are precipitated by the Japanese trying to send in supply convoys to the beleaguered Japanese soldiers that are on Guadalcanal that have been cut off. And you know, there there's one particular one where uh, a, a number of destroyers are towing drums of supplies, and the idea is that they'll execute a sharp turn cut the drums loose they'll float ashore or toward the shore and the japanese army can pick them up uh, well that destroyer convoy gets picked up by u.s destroyers uh, an engagement happens um, each size sides lose a few but the japanese are forced to withdraw and and the supply status for the japanese troops on guadalcanal becomes critical uh, to the point where the, they they can't really fight anymore, and so Guadalcanal is is I believe by the end of uh, oh I guess it's uh, early February 1943 is finally secured by uh, the United States and and the Aussies and and everyone else who was there, and the Japanese are either driven out, killed, or or taken prisoner on that island. And that's the first real uh, allied victory in the Pacific where we took possession of something, um, something that was held by the Japanese. Uh, how big of how big of a naval force or, or military force at all did Australia really field? Uh, they had a number of heavy cruisers and, and other things. I, I'm, I'm not really totally sure, but I mean, the Australian Navy was a formidable factor uh, and they exchanged fire with the Japanese Navy on a number of time uh, of occasions. Which so that's the Pacific. The other yeah. event in uh, August is that the one of two times that the United States mainland is actually attacked, a Japanese seaplane drops a couple bombs on a forest in Oregon, starting a forest fire. Um, and that is it. Uh, another seaplane attack takes place later, also on Oregon, uh, not much to to say there, but that was the only time that the United States mainland 
was hit during World War II. Did um, they miss something? Were they going for a target other than a forest? I, I don't know. I, I don't really know what their objective was in that one. That seems pretty wild. I don't know. Um, I mean, but, but, but forest fires are dangerous. Yeah. But, you know. Um, let's go back to Stalingrad. Uh, uh, the, the Germans initially may meet with great success as they're pushing into Stalingrad. Uh, through August, they're doing fine. Um, in September, they're doing okay. Uh, and Stalingrad, though, becomes uh, a critical strategic mess for the Germans because they get into Stalingrad and then they get surrounded in Stalingrad and they can't get out. Um, and, and they, they only, they, they don't even get all the way in. In fact, there is a famous, uh, incident or event or location called Pavlov's house. Um, it's, it's in a main square in Stalingrad overlooking a key critical intersection and Sergeant Yakov Pavlov, with not a number of people, uh, he's got, I think, a dozen men or so. Um, he holds this house for 60 days without relief against German infantry and armored columns. Uh, and I believe he's made a hero of the Soviet Union after this one. Um, but yeah, it's it's a single platoon of of Soviet soldiers. And... They managed to hold this house against repeated waves uh, for two months in one of the worst places in the world. Um, but, you know, that and, and other tenacious defenses by the Soviet soldiers and the forces there kind of stall the, the German advance. And then the, Germ the Soviets start to surround the city. Um, the German commander, Friedrich Paulus, really wants to retreat or surrender. He's running out of food. He's running out of ammo. He's running out of medicine. He has run out of medicine. Um, and in January, he's communicating the desperation of the situation to Hitler, who responds by promoting him to field marshal. And then the next day, uh, in, in January of 1943, Hitler, on a broadcast, reminds Germany that no field marshal uh, of the, the German or the Prussian armies has ever surrendered. And so the implication to uh, Paulus is clear. You will either hold that line or you will commit suicide. Paulus uh, afterward remarks at one point, I have no intention of shooting myself for that bohemian corporal. And the next day surrenders to the Russians um, after losing a, a catastrophic number of men. And that is really the start of the turning point in uh, the, the Eastern Front uh, when Stalingrad, when, when that battle go, fails for the Germans. Um, and although the Germans are able to mount some... Uh, some offensives, they never have a, a major victory like the, um, like they had before after that. Can I take us really quick back to that organ bombing, which interested me is a, a lot. <laughs> okay. I, I just did some reading. It says uh, the, the mission was to drop an incendiary, incendiary firebomb on the thick forest and cause a massive fire 
that would shock Americans and divert resources from fighting the war. So that is literally what they were trying to do. That is what they were trying to do. Apparently, they they controlled the fire very quickly and actually thought it was an accident, uh, an accidental bombing by uh, like a training run by an American plane. Neat. Well, stay tuned for our uh, podcast on the battle of uh, the air battle of Los Angeles when we get into when the U.S., uh, I think it was the Air Force, actually did that. Um, Oh, all right. uh, Yeah, Southern California. Anyway, back to World War II. Okay, yes, please. Back to the uh, the Soviets. Yep. So uh, that's kind of a shift there. Meanwhile, down in North Africa, in October 1942, the Second Battle of El Alamein occurs. Rommel, fortunately for the Allies, has been... uh, been on sick leave in Germany. He rushes back for this uh, battle, um, and and his replacement was, uh, I think, I think died of a heart attack like at the same time. Uh, so Rommel comes rushing back to North Africa, but El Alamein, the Second Battle of El Alamein, does not go well for his forces, and they are pushed back from from their objective to get to Alexandria. And from then on, essentially, Rommel is on the defensive, and he ends up getting pushed all the way back into Tunisia, where he's finally evacuated. But at the end of it all, uh, the Africa Corps, Africa Corps, uh, I don't know how you'd say it in German, the Afri- that, that force in North Africa is either lost or taken prisoner, and the Germans lose 280,000 men out of that, um, I, I believe, is the number that is, is taken prisoner. 280,000. <clears throat> yes, prisoner. That's not including the ones that have been killed outright. No. Um, complicating Rommel's life in November, b- before all of that fell, uh, in November of 1942, the Allies launch Operation Torch, which is a U.S invasion of uh, essentially Morocco and Algeria to and and that kind of opens up another front that Rommel has to worry about he's got the British pushing on him in the east in Egypt and now he's got the Americans having landed in the west and that becomes a significant problem for him the torch landings go off really very well um because these are French colonies, and France is notionally under the control of Vichy, which is notionally really under the control of Germany. Uh, Germany does not take to this very happily, and so they invade Vichy France, their own puppet government, two days later. Uh, and and the whole semblance of uh, you know French governing occupied France under Vichy is gone. As Germany just says, you know, we're, we're taking over. You guys aren't handling things. Your your colonies are getting invaded by the Americans now. Um, so they're they're not happy. Um, with that, the last major event for 1942 that I wanted to talk about was um, in Chicago uh, in in December of 1942. A team at the University of Chicago under Enrico Fermi is able to carry out the first nuclear chain reaction as part of the Manhattan Project. And 
you know, we'll, we'll see where that goes um, when, in, and how instrumental that is in ending World War II in 1945. But is this going to be a three-part, pod, four-part podcast? Well, it might be. Because if this is 1942 and we're coming up on an hour, <laughs> we look like we're extending, because, I mean, 1942, we're still in the middle of the war here. Yes, we are. 1943 goes a little bit, um, well, I don't want to say it goes faster, but anyway. Um, well, this is this is like our uh, world history podcast where we uh, decided to do the decades, got in, and we're like, oh, there's a lot of decades. Right. So, But this one we're going to actually finish. We're going to get through World War II. I think so far the reception for the first one was pretty good. So I think right now we're leaving it where the, we've started making incremental progress in the Pacific. Uh, the Soviets are starting to make some at least at least stand their ground, I guess, um, against yeah. the Germans. And, yeah, that, uh, that's a fair assessment. Okay, and uh, and then Africa, things are starting. Rommel's having to start is is backing down a little bit now. Yeah, at the end of 1942, he's bottled up in Tunisia pretty badly, and and his forces don't last very long in 1943. Okay. All right, well, I guess we'll leave it there, and then we'll come back and we'll hit 1943 and see how far we get at that point. We don't want to shortchange this, uh, uh, like I mentioned last podcast, um, pretty much every book is about World War II. Um, I don't think that's actually true, just to be clear, but there is a vast amount of writing and research done into World War II, and we don't want to shortchange it because the, la- uh, the layman out there needs to know. So... Um, I was wrong. Rommel lost 250,000 prisoners in North Africa, not 280,000. My apologies. Well, still, quarter He's million. Yeah. About two. Sorry, you broke up there. War and Peace was definitely about World War II. <laughs> yes, once again, Cameron keeps bringing up books that aren't about World War II. You're not helping my cause. Um, oh, and we promised to finish this podcast before World War Three. Well, uh, moving on. Uh, now, yeah. Immediately. Um, okay. Uh, so like I said, like always, um, go back and listen to our previous podcasts, especially obviously if you're listening to part two of world war two podcast, listen to part one, um, and then tell your friends so that they can also jump in and uh, tell us what we're missing and or other subjects you want us to cover. We will not be covering world war two, uh, inter- uh, interminably. Uh, there will be other subjects in the future. So it's not a lame um, word. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, still coming down the pipe. We've got um, lots of, uh, we've got a physics podcast planned. We have a podcast about uh, ADHD with a doctor planned, um, a podcast about Guyana. So a lot in the, in the hopper here. So uh, go uh, follow us, uh, like us on Facebook, all of those things. And we will talk to you next podcast.